Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm one of the pastors, and you're joining us this morning as we're continuing a sermon series that we're walking through this summer that we're calling More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And each week in this series, we're exploring one of the most incredible and most well-known stories the Bible has to offer. If you don't have a church background, these are stories that you may even be familiar with because they're so incredible that they have become part of our collective cultural consciousness. And as we engage these stories each week, we're trying to zero in on the details and meanings that perhaps we overlooked the first time or previous times that we've encountered these stories and and see how all of these stories ultimately point us to Jesus and that there is incredible relevance for our lives today. This week, uh, we were looking at booking a campsite for a family vacation later this summer, and my wife, Abby, is really diligent about looking at reviews for all sorts of things. I don't have a whole lot of patience for the reviews, but she's really diligent, and we were looking at this one campsite, and there was a ton of positive reviews. And at the same time, there were a bunch of negative reviews. And so she started clicking through the negative reviews to try to figure out, is there a theme? And there was. It seemed that all of the negative reviews were basically from angry people who didn't really like the fact that the campsite had a security guard, and the security guard, as they would walk around, would often enforce the rules. You know, like the rules, like you can only have one tent on your campsite or you couldn't have pets, right? The, the kind of rules that were very, very clear in the booking process. <laughs> See, people's, people really were just upset because the rules were being enforced. So how do you feel about rules? You know, I know some, for some of you who are generally rule followers, you're like, yeah, I'm happy to have rules, and as a matter of fact, I'd be even happier if everyone else would go ahead and follow the rules too. And for others, I know that you're like, "Mm, you know, rules are a nice suggestion. But when they become a little too rigid, then rules are really meant to be broken because who wants to live that kind of really restricted sort of life? (laughs) Today, we are coming to perhaps the most famous rules of all. The Ten Commandments. And so we're going to jump in to Exodus chapter 20. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, Let's listen for God's word speaking into our lives this morning. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak into our lives, that you would bring conviction, you'd bring encouragement, you'd bring transformation, you'd bring healing. Lord, that we can live more fully the lives that you've made us to live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what place do rules or laws have in life? I want to just begin with the assertion that rules are really important, that they're really great, that rules actually help hold things together. Rules help us and laws help us avoid chaos. Just think about the the universe itself, right? The universe operates on laws and rules that function the same way over and over and over again. It's part of how God has made things to bring order rather than chaos. We don't understand all of those, but they're there. Laws and rules are really important in games because rules help establish, right, the, what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior, what's acceptable and unacceptable. Really, without the rules, the game falls apart and it's not much fun. I mean, it, we probably all had that kid or maybe some kids when we were growing up who would constantly change the rules in the middle of the game, especially when you started winning, <laughs> right? And it's not very much fun because it's chaotic and it, it doesn't make sense. We need laws in general society, right? We need traffic laws so that there isn't total chaos. Well, New Jersey, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we have them, maybe we don't. Maybe they're just optional suggestions. See, we have in this passage these Ten Commandments. Actually, commandment is never really used in this passage. It's actually the words that God has given. It's often referred to as the Ten Words that God has given, which are this succinct, like, packed-in code of ethics, of morality, describing what behaviors are appropriate for people, what's right, what's wrong, and giving a description of how life in society is intended to work best, right? It's to help make sure things are ordered and avoid chaos. It's to make sure that there's good limits so that within those limits there can be freedom for life to be enjoyed by all. And there's been debate for a lot, of, a lot of years about whether or not there are universal ethical principles. Are there any principles 
that extend to all cultures in all times and in all places. In 2019, there was actually a team of anthropologists from Oxford University who published a study saying that they had identified seven consistent universal ethical principles, moral principles that do span across societies and cultures. They had studied 60 different cultures from all around the world. They had been looking at these historical artifacts that describe the culture. They had looked at 600,000 words, studied 600 different sources, and they had concluded that there were seven universal moral principles that applied to all cultures. And that were these. Help your family. Help your group. Return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources fairly, respect others' property. See, and they argued that these seven principles held society together based on the common assumption that every culture understands that the common good is really important because if the common good falls apart, society itself deteriorates and life falls apart into total chaos. And it's interesting, when we think about the Ten Commandments that we just read, we can certainly see in them these same principles at work, especially if you zero in on the final six commandments in the list, which really are speaking to our human-to-human interactions and relationships. You know, they speak to the common good, if you will. So it says, honor your father and mother, obviously speaking to that reality of help your family, of deferring to your superiors. You shall not murder. Duh. Kind of the common good by definition has that as as a baseline, right? You shall not commit adultery, helping your family once again, but also helping the group because adultery tears apart the fabric of society. You shall not steal, obviously securing the property rights of every individual. You shall not covet anything, again, speaking to property rights, but also speaking in a way to distribution of resources that don't be jealous of the way it's distributed. And then you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, which isn't directly addressed in the seven, but I wonder if that's where bravery falls because sometimes that's the hardest thing to do, to be bold, courageous, and brave, to speak the truth. That can have a high cost. And and I'm pointing this out not really to try to pigeonhole the Ten Commandments into what research shows, but it is amazing that Part of these Ten Commandments that God gave them in the wilderness so long ago seemed to be common to all people in all places. And they weren't probably even new to Israel when they received them in the wilderness. It was probably just God making explicit what had been implicit if that had been already functioning in all cultures in all times and places. It was God saying, hey, here's explicitly what's going to make life work well. And if we pause right here for a moment and you took that time to reflect and make an assessment, how are you doing? How are you doing if you started walking through each one of these commandments, these common ethical principles? An interesting aspect of the study was that though there was this agreement that these were seven universal moral principles, there was disagreement on their order of priority and importance, that some cultures ranked some higher than others. And I think we often do the very same thing when we approach the commandments and the law of God. 
We prioritize some over others, and usually I think I do that in order to relativize my failures to say, yeah, my failures aren't really that big a deal. Because if I say, yeah, murder is like, that's the really big one, that's the really important one, and I haven't murdered anybody lately. But this other one, don't give false testimony. You know, that little white lie I told, that wasn't such a big deal. I mean, it's even funny, just think about the name, a white lie. Like, we have descriptions of lies to create gradation of lies so that we can justify some lying over others. And so we can rank these commandments more or less important and fail to recognize that all of them, when broken, tear at the very fabric of society and common good. which is what these six commandments were speaking to. Common to Israel, common, it seems, to other cultures. But then there were the first four commandments, which were crazy and distinct then, and even today are incredibly distinct and absurd for many. You shall have no other gods before me. Have no idols. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. See, God is declaring that life works best and society functions best when God's at the center of it. That's why these first four lead into the other six. But as I was researching for this message this weekend, I ran across a commentator that pointed something out that I hadn't really ever noticed before especially about the first commandment. The first commandment, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you notice what it didn't say? It didn't actually say there are no other gods. It just says you shall not have other gods before me. And it's not a claim to monotheism. It's actually a recognition and a claim that There is a myriad of gods that are options for us, but there is only one God who is worthy of your faith, of your trust, of your reverence, of your respect, of your worship, of your loyalty. But there are tons of other things that we can give our heart away to. Other gods in our lives. God, defined by Merriam-Webster, is that which is the supreme or ultimate reality those spiritual beings, those people, those places, those things that help make life make sense for us, those things that are the ground that ground us, that give life meaning, that make it real, and that make life really worth living. Without that person or that thing, life begins to fall apart. And sometimes it takes a very concrete, particular form, such as an idol, and it promises us some sort of security, comfort, or hope, and so we cling to it, but when push comes to shove, we lose it, and it disappoints us in the end. And so God is telling us, among all these other gods, there's only one that is worthy of your respect, and really, that's what the third commandment is all about. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It's not just about a rule, don't say God, as if God is a bad word to be avoided. It's about a posture of reverence and respect and worship. 
You know, when you say God's name, are you using it in recognition that God is, in fact, over and above all things, that he is the supreme and ultimate reality upon which all life exists? As I've gotten to know some of our Jewish Orthodox neighbors, man, it is easy to see how, that they have an incredible reverence and respect for God. They actually, they won't use God's name. They won't say it. They won't even write it because they're so concerned that they might accidentally use it in a way that does not give God the awe, the wonder, the honor, the respect, and worship that God is in fact due. It's a big deal for them. I think we actually probably have a lot to learn from them about this particular commandment. Oh, and the next one, <laughs> keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. See, Sabbath has kind of become a hot topic in our area, hasn't it? Because on Saturdays, the traffic, depending on where you're driving, can be really tough because there's a lot of people walking instead of driving. But the Sabbath is really at the heart about trust, it's about trusting God. It's about trusting that the God who created all things is the God who will, in fact, work in your situation, whatever it is, and will provide for you what you need even when you stop toiling and working to get it done. See, the Sabbath is about recognizing that I have limits, but God does not. <laughs> I have work that I can't accomplish. I have problems I can't solve. And so I'm going to stop trusting in me and stop to intentionally and purposefully trust in God to handle the really important things in life because when it comes down to it, I actually am not able. It's above my pay grade, but it's not above his. And the thing about Sabbath, as it's actually experienced, Sabbath is kind of like a vacation every week. How does that sound? <laughs> like God gave Sabbath as a gift of rest. You know, we have this common question that we often ask one another, and maybe sometimes we actually mean it. Hey, how you doing? And then we give the response that's kind of just standard at this point. Yeah, busy, tired. How about some rest? See, the Sabbath is the gift and the commandment for rest. I'm going to acknowledge, I'm not very good at it. I don't think as Americans we're very good at it. Yo, sure, I might take a day off from work, but did it mean I stopped working, even at home? Did it mean that I stopped and set the day apart as a day where I'm going to intentionally, deeply connect with God, reflect on who he is, his place in my life? Or did I just take a day off from paid work? See, when we think about all these commandments and it's always begging the question, how are we doing? Is your life demonstrating that God is the only God worthy of your respect, worthy of your trust? And it's helpful to use these commandments as this point of reflection so that we can be intentional in our lives. But there is a temptation when we start doing this because we get this list. And when we get a list, it's really tempting for us to reduce these things to the least common standard to say I've fulfilled it. It's kind of like when I was in school, the question I was always carrying with me was, what's the least I have to do to pass? 
And it's so easy to take that same approach with the laws, with these rules. We often reduce it to what the least is that we have to do in order to say we've fulfilled it. But Jesus doesn't settle for reducing these laws and commandments. Instead, he puts them on steroids. Instead, Jesus takes this and instead of reducing it, he says it's not about your outward behavior. It's even bigger than that. It's about what comes out of you. It's about your heart. At one point, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. (laughs) Right, we know. And Jesus says, yeah, but here's the thing. If you're harboring anger, if you're harboring bitterness, if you looked on somebody and you thought that they're totally foolish and basically worthless, then you've already committed murder in your heart. Another point, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you've looked lustfully at a woman or at a man, you've already committed adultery in your heart. At another point, he's addressing stuff and, and our temptation to covet and desire what other people have in the midst of our fear. He says, don't worry about stuff. Don't worry about where your, where your food's gonna come from, what clothes you're gonna wear because God knows what you need and he's a good father and he will provide what you need. And so relax. Don't worry in your heart. Instead, trust. Sounds a lot like Sabbath. And Jesus keeps going on, expanding these Ten Commandments to not reduce them into this checklist, but to show that in them, there's actually intended to be a richness and fullness of life as God intended it to be because in these commandments, we get a glimpse of the life of God himself. We get to see in the commandments the character of God. Because if you think about it, don't the rules that we establish, don't the rules that people around you establish tell you something about their values and their character? I mean, if you go into somebody's house and their rule for the house is you take off your shoes and you leave them by the door, it tells you a lot. You may misunderstand what it tells you, but it might tell you that they value health, they value cleanliness, they value not having to sweep and mop every day. Whatever it is, it tells you something. My grandmother had, had this rule for living. She said, we're going to use the silver and the fine china because why bother have nice things if you're not going to use them? And behind this was this heart, this value that my grandmother had for people, for hospitality, for enjoying and grabbing hold of the fullness of life, not putting it off for some rainy day. See, the rules we establish tell us something about our values and our character, and the Ten Commandments tell us about the values and the character of God, of what's important to Him. We see that He's glorious, transcendent, holy, worthy of worship. We see that He cares about people individually. He cares about people collectively and how they live together. We also see that He is a gracious and loving God. And we see it explicitly in the passage that we read, not exactly in the Ten Commandments, but in what is attached to it, what's known as the prologue, the very beginning, the premise and basis upon which the commandments are given. We see it in chapter 20, verse 2 that we read. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, the context matters here because it tells us that their relationship with God was not dependent on their ability to keep all of the commandments, but it was dependent on the fact that God had already acted on their behalf. He had already saved them. Yes, the commandments show the best way to live. Yes, it shows the best way for society to function, but he had already chosen them and saved them before he even gave the commandments. So what he was giving was a description of the life he intended them to live, not the life that would determine whether or not he cared for them. 
And this life he wanted to give them was a life that they wanted as well. We saw it in chapter 19, what we read earlier. It's actually technically right before the details of the Ten Commandments, but it gives us the context that they're given in because we see that God again also reminds them there that he brought them out of Egypt to obey all that he commands. And before they even know the details, the cry of their heart is, we will do everything the Lord has said to us. Did they do it? No, of course not. Actually, the rest of the story of the Old Testament is essentially the up and down roller coaster of obedience and rebellion, of God redirecting, of warning, of disciplining them, guiding them to a place where they will turn back and repent and come to obedience again. But the repentance was always short-lived. And isn't that our story? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, your heart's desire has been, yes, I want to obey. I want to follow your commands. I want to live the way you've made me to live. And yet, I find myself on a roller coaster of up and down, fits and starts, obedience and rebellion, loyalty and failure, trust and fear. Because the reality is our human hearts are still loyal to ourselves and to sin even before God. And so this story and the 10 words ultimately lead us right to Jesus because though we fail to live them out in all their fullness and purpose, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter four, in Jesus, we have a high priest who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus didn't live the least common standard for the 10 words. He lived the fullness because in him is the full character of God because he's God in the flesh. God revealed in Jesus Christ. He always had the Father at the center of all of his life. Doing God's will was his ultimate purpose. Putting the common good ahead of his own to the point that he laid his life down. So that he who knew no sin became sin, took our sin, our failure upon himself so that we could be forgiven, set free, and given new life and the opportunity to once again try to embrace the life that's described in the commands, in the 10 words, and the life that has incredible great purpose beyond just keeping rules. And we saw it in 19, the purpose, the, the, the 10 commandments are the what of how we're supposed to live. But the why is seen in chapter 19 because God's people are a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. They're a treasured possession. And there was nothing particularly special about them except that God had chosen them. He had made a covenant with them. That's what made them special. Do you have anything in your life that is or has been special but has really no inherent value to anyone else? You know, one of the, the first thing that came to mind to me was this stuffed animal I had growing up, this brown stuffed animal, this bear, called him Pooh Bear. But there was really nothing special about him. He wasn't very soft. He was kind of rough, actually. He was pretty heavy. He had this kind of silly outfit that you couldn't really change because it was sewn on. I mean, see, there was nothing really particularly special about him, and nobody else really wanted him, but I wanted him. And nobody especially wanted him after my dog peed on him but I still wanted him, even though he had been soiled, because he was special to me. I had chosen that bear, and God had chosen these people to be his treasured possession, but not so that they exclusively would know God. In fact, he chose them so that the nations could know him. 
He had made this promise back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram when he said, hey, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna take your descendants and they're gonna be my special possession, but here's the thing, I'm gonna bless you so that all nations on earth will be blessed through you. That's actually what it meant when God said in chapter 19 here that there'll be a kingdom of priests. Because what do the priests do? Functionally in the temple, the tabernacle. They're the ones that make the sacrifices, right? But fundamentally, those sacrifices were about standing before the people on behalf of God and then standing before God on behalf of the people. Mediating, mending, repairing this broken relationship. He's saying, my people are to be priests to the world, to represent me to them, to show them my character, what I'm about, what life in my kingdom is supposed to look like, the principles by which I made you to live. So stand before them on my behalf, but stand before me on their behalf. God had intended them to be a holy nation, which didn't mean better than anybody else. Holy just separate, set apart, different, distinct. The way they were to live as kingdom priests was to be distinct and different, a better alternative to the world around them. That's what the Ten Commandments are about, is to teach the world, teach the people of God how to show the world what life is supposed to look like as a treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and holy nations. And as we come to the end here, I want you to don't miss something. This wasn't just God's plan for these people way back when. It's his plan for all the followers of Jesus today. In 1 Peter 2, 9, it says this, you in Jesus are a chosen people, treasured possession, royal priesthood to stand before people on behalf of God and to stand before God on behalf of people, a holy nation set apart with a distinct life, a better alternative to the world around us, a life that the early church identified as a life of intrigue, lives that were so distinct that it made the people around them curious about what made them tick. Who is is behind this whole way of living that's so strange and distinct? I just wonder how how intriguing is your life? How intriguing is our life together? The Ten Commandments are to lead us to live lives of intrigue, to be weird people in a world that needs another and better way to live. And you're there to stand as a priest, we together collectively showing this alternative way of living. So let's stand before the people on behalf of God, showing them another way, and let's stand before God on behalf of people who do not know him, whose lives do not reflect the reality of the Ten Commandments, who are living apart from God. Stand before God on their behalf and pray. Let's do it now. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Ten Words, your Ten Commandments. We thank you that it shows us your character who you are, helps us know you more deeply. Lord God, we recognize our failure to live them out, and we're so grateful for your grace and your love for us that Jesus, who perfectly lived them out, offered himself in our place as a sacrifice. And so, Lord, we long, we long to be obedient. We long to be a people who is holy, whose lives are distinct, Lord, may may our life together and individually be so intriguing, so different, so distinct that people wonder that we would have the opportunity to share this hope, this good news that we have in Jesus Christ 
And that, Lord, those who are far from you would be brought near. Those who are lost would be found and swept up in your incredible, amazing grace and love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.